mute everyone here. Okay. So um, first of all, we're going to start with dedicating this class to the Yurtzeit of the mother of Esther Berger, whose name is Rivka Bas Avram HaKoyin. So now there's two Avram HaKoyins at this class. And uh, it's also a very special day because besides the Yurtzeit of your mother, Esther, it's a big young in Lubavitch, Tess Kislev, is the day um, uh, at Yud Kislev tomorrow. Yud Kislev is the day that the second Lubavitcher Rebbe was released from house arrest. Um, you know, there was always the antagonist who would find ways to uh, snitch and come up with, uh, with stories to get the government to arrest the Hasidic Rebbes, especially in Lubavitch. And... Uh, and, and tomorrow is the day that he was actually released. Um, uh, it was actually a year minus a day before he passed away that he went through that. Okay, so with that being the case, let's jump into the class. Let's discuss some uh, different pointers about the class and then about the Torah portion. And then we'll get to know the matriarchs, Rachel and Leah. Okay. So this week's Torah portion comes in connection with last week's Torah portion, which is that um, uh, Jacob, under the guidance of his mother, uh, kind of stole the blessings that Isaac was going to give Esau because Isaac was blind and, um, and uh, Jacob fooled his father. And, and stole the blessings. And therefore, when Aesop found out, he uh, committed himself that after his father dies, he's going to kill his brother, his twin brother, Jacob. Rebecca finds out and tells Jacob, you need to go, uh, go to my, my uh, brother's house. And he has their two daughters and find a wife. And I'll let you know when it's safe to come back. And then Rebecca goes to her husband, Isaac, and tells Isaac, I don't want my son Jacob to marry from the locals. Um, I want him to marry from the family uh, dynasty. And uh, Isaac agrees and tells Jacob, calls him in, gives him a blessing and tells him, go to, you, to your maternal uncle and find a wife. So this week's Torah portion begins with Yaakov actually going. And Jacob left the city called Be'er Sheva, Sheva, where his father and mother lived and where he lived. And he went to a place called Choron. Now, there's a couple of things I have to tell you here that you're not going to see from the verse. Number one, that verse covers a span of 14 years. How so? Because we do a calculation knowing how old Jacob told Pharaoh that he was. And then if Jacob was that old, we know how old Joseph was. He left, he was kidnapped from his father's house at the age of 17, add on 22. So now we know how old Joseph 
was when his father came to Egypt. And if you do the deductions and you figure out when Joseph was born and the year, the, the moment that Joseph was born, Jacob tells his father-in-law, I'm going back home. So if you do the mathematics, you're going to see that from the time when Jacob left the house until this end of the story that he tells Pharaoh how old he is, there's missing 14 years. And our sages tell us where did he go for these 14 years? He made a pit stop in the Torah Academy in which his father learned and his grandfather learned. So Noah had a son, Shame, and then the grandson, Aver, and the patriarchs all learned the teachings of God in that school. So he spent there 14 years. You'll see nothing about it in the verse. The verse makes it sound like he went straight from Be'er Sheva to Harona, and that is not true. Now, another thing I want to share with you. A lot, a lot of Kabbalah and Hasidis on this one little verse that has six words. And let's begin to see what it means so that we can understand how the story is not just studying history of over 3,000, close to 4,000 years ago, but rather it's my story, your story, and each and every one's story. So by Yetzir Yaakov and Jacob goes out from the well of Shava. Shava has two meanings. Remember we spoke last week that the grandfather Abraham called it Shava with the O sound, Shava, which comes from the word oath. And Isaac calls it Sheva, which comes from the word seven. Now, the well of Sheva means, mystically speaking, that it is the spiritual source, Be'er, the well, the source of Sheva or Shava. Now, we need to know what this means. So to understand that, we need to know what the mystical interpretation of the word Yaakov means. The word Yaakov is broken into two. The first letter is Yud. It is a dot, and it represents the essence of the soul, what we call the Pintala Yid in Yiddish, in Spanish. It's called Chispa de Judio. It's the essence core of the soul. The word Okave, the second part of his name, as you remember from last week, they called him Yaakov because he was holding on to the Okave, the heel of his twin brother, Esau, and that's how he was born. So Okave means heel. And thus we have the words Vayetze Yaakov and Jacob left. And what does that mean mystically? It means that the soul is in a most exalted spiritual place. And God tells the soul, I'm sending you on a journey, on a mission. And for that mission, you're going to go and come down from the highest of heights. Lebira amikta to the depths of all ditches, the depth of depth of the ditch. That means you're going to leave from in being in the bosom of God and to come down 
into the most separated and darkest point of the entire evolution of creation, which is the opaqueness and the arrogance and the self-centeredness, which is in the very genetics of all physical creations. So Yaakov means that the soul comes down to the Okev. Shmibe'er Shava, it comes from where? From the well of Shava. If you're going to learn that the word Shava means oath, what we're saying is the Talmud tells us that before God sends his soul down to the world, he makes the soul take a oath, an oath. It says in the Talmud attracted Nida, Mashbim Oisoi, we make him swear to Sadik that you will be a righteous one, the Altihirosha, and you will not be a wicked one. And the level of oath, what the definition of an oath means, that it is transrational, illogical. So you have a logical reason why to be friends. However, before you go on your own separate ways in life, you make a pact. You make this uh, pinky promise or you make this, you know, blood thing. But the point is you make an oath, meaning that even when we go our own separate ways and we become distant from each other physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, we will always remain friends, not because it's logical anymore, but because we made an oath. And so too God tells the soul, up here, it's logical and most natural for you to be loyal to me. However, when you descend down into that world, it's not going to make sense no more. There's going to be temptations. It's going to seem to be that only the wicked prosper and the righteous get taken advantage of. And therefore, you may think that it doesn't make sense no more to be connected to me and be loyal to me. Thus, you're going to take an oath. Another definition of the word Sheva instead of Shava. Sheva means seven, meaning that God's saying, I am imbuing you with the spirituality and the energy of the seven divine emotions of the soul. And then you should know that there's also a third interpretation, which comes from the word Sava, Savua, satisfied, meaning that I am giving you more than enough energy to be able to pull through the trials and tribulations and the temptations of when you have to go through a physical life. Hence, what you're learning here in this verse is the truest definition of the saying, I am a divine being having a human experience. And then the verse goes on to say, and you're going to go to Choron. The word Choron in Hebrew means the anger, the raging anger of God. It's a place in which they anger God through their egocentric, narcissism, self-centered rebellion and denial of God. And now we need to understand what is the purpose of the journey. And the purpose of the journey is to make sure that the Yud, 
the Pintalayid, that peace of God within each and every one of us remains in the driver's seat, the dominant consciousness, even all the way down to the Akev, the physical body. And the point is to take all the energy and the spirituality of Be'er Shova, Sheva, Sova, and to bring it down to Choron. Now, while I told you the word Choron means anger, so the Talmud tells us that the letter Chet, the letter Chet has three lines. And the secret of the word Chet, Chet also is the first letter of the word which stands for sin, a chet. And the Talmud tells us that the secret of the chet is that there's no way out but down. However, if you break your ego, drill a hole through the chet, then if you make a hole on the left side between the roof and the leg, then all of a sudden you have the letter hey. Now, if you turn the chet into a hay, the letters of the word charon now become the letters of the word rena, rejoicing. For that is the ultimate rejoicing that we give God when we remain committed, even when down here it doesn't make sense. And when we specifically take the physicality around us, and we transform it into just another vehicle of being myself, which is a God-fearing and a God-serving human being, a divine being in a human experience, then we cause for God the greatest rena, which is rejoicing. And then he goes on to the next verse, and he says that he all of a sudden happened upon a place, and he went to sleep there because it was evening time. Now the word, the, 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 the verse uses for happened upon, yifka, is also one of the terminologies used for prayer. And thus we are taught that Jacob is the one who instituted the nighttime prayer. So by Abraham it says, by Yashkem Avram Baboike, Abraham woke up early in the morning, Thus, we know that he instituted the morning prayer by Isaac, where the first time he met his wife, Rebecca, it says that he went out into the field, lasuach. And the word lasuach is another terminology for prayer. And it says in the verse, lifnois erev, that means before evening. In other words, afternoon. So we know that Isaac instituted the afternoon prayer, Mincha. While over here by Jacob, it's talking about nighttime because he went to sleep, right? It says the sun set. So we know that Jacob inst excuse me, instituted the evening prayer, Ma'ariv. Now, our sages tell us, why does it say by Yifka Bamokim? And he happened upon the place. The Jew just said he went there, it's got night time, he's on his way, he's going to lay down. And our sages tell us that actually Jacob was not going to be in that place. He was on a mission from his father. However, God said, how can I allow 
for Jacob to place, to pass through my residence and not have him stay over the night. Thus, we learn that this place is actually Mount, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And therefore, you're going to see that after he has an amazing dream, he wakes up and he says, I did not know that this place was holy. I would have never slept here. This is the gateway to heaven. And because of that verse in this week's Torah portion, until this very day, every Jew, regardless of in which land he is, will always be facing towards Jerusalem to pray. And in Jerusalem, towards Temple Mount, because our sages learn now from the words, this is the gateway to heaven, that the temple above through which the, the prayers ascend is aligned with where the temple was here below. And thus we always face our prayers there. Now, parenthetically speaking, as I was preparing the class, you know, I started thinking, not a healthy hobby, but I started thinking. What does it mean this is the place in heaven? Spirituality has geography. What, what here is Jerusalem and not there? Heaven transcends beyond this whole notion of geography and space. Thus, what I would like to suggest is we're talking about the place, not as a geographical place, but the dimension through which physical prayers can enter into the spiritual realm is through the conduit of the physical heaven, physical holy temple, which is aligned with the spiritual holy temple, which is how the prayers pass through from the physical work of the human being into the spiritual realm of heaven. My own thoughts for whatever it's worth. Now, and of course, we need to understand what that means. And Hasidus has a lot of explanations what exactly the holy temple in heaven is and what emanation is it and why it's the perfect place for which, for which prayers to come up. And that's where they get cleansed of the, of the egocentric human fingerprints and so forth and so on. Moving right along here. So what does Jacob do when he gets to this place? He takes from the stones of the place and he puts it around his head as a half a circle to protect him. And he goes to sleep and he dreams. And he dreams that there is a ladder. And the ladder ascends from the ground to the heaven. And angels are going up and down. Now, in Kabbalah, you're going to find everywhere the same interpretation that the prayer that ascends from physical to spiritual is the, prayer, the ladder of prayer. And so much so that it actually gets detailed to how many rungs that, letter, that ladder had, which represents the different rungs of prayer, the opening part, the verses of praise, and the blessings of the Shema, the Shema, the Amida, and then the post-Amida, which is already reaching into heaven. Now, what happens is, that we need to know why would it say that the angels are going up and down? Humans that we are down, we first go up and then we go down. However, angels that are up in heaven, they should have first said are descending and ascending. 
What were the angels doing down here that they were originally ascending before they were descending? And therefore, Rashi tells us that what was really taking place was a changing of the guards. And the reason why there was a changing of the guards is because there are specific angels that protect the people in the land of Israel, and they are not allowed to leave the land of Israel. Jacob was about to leave the land of Israel, so what he got to see was a changing of the guards. And hence, the angels of Israel that were down here protecting him until now are ascending back to heaven, and the angels in heaven that their job is to protect outside of the of the land of Israel are descending. Now, I will have you know something amazing from the Talmud. You would think, oh, yeah, really nice. Jacob gets angels to protect him. But you and I, <laughs> we're out there on our own. And the answer is no. You should know that the Talmud tells us of an interesting law that people used to do. They used to physically do it. There's a reason why we stopped. And that is that before a human being, uh, before a person entered into the outhouse to do his bodily needs, he would actually turn around and there is actually an exact wording as to what he would say in apologizing to the angels that I am made as a mortal human being. I am sorry, I need to ask you to wait here outside while I go into the restroom and do my human needs. So you see how serious it is that throughout the generations, this notion of having a guardian angel is absolutely tangible and practical in Judaism. Now, today, the only conversations we ever have with angels that are protecting us and walking with us is every Friday night, as you know, before we start our Shabbat meal, we sing the song, Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Hashares, Malachi Elion. We sing to the angels. Now, I would like to let you know, because a lot of people do not pay attention to this, what's actually happening when we sing that song is a changing of the guards. And that's why there are four phrases, four stanzas to that song. In the first stanza, we say, Malachi Hashores. In the other three stanzas, we say, Malachi Hashalom. Why do we call the first stanza angels, working angels, ministering angels, while in the other three stanzas, we say, angels of peace? So you should know, I didn't notice, I used to sing this from I was knee high, Shalom Aleichem, Aleichem, and I didn't notice until I learned it. And I actually learned it in a teaching of the Rebbe of Blessed and Saintly Memory, that the Rebbe says that the first Shalom, peace unto you, is not hello. You know that in Hebrew, Shalom means hello, Shalom means goodbye, and Shalom means peace. You should know that when we sing Shalom Aleichem, we're actually saying goodbye. We're saying goodbye to the weekday angels that carry us through the mundane work of our weekday. And then we say, Boachem, 
welcome. Why would you say shalom before welcome? The answer is because in the first stance, you're saying goodbye to the weekday angels. And then in the next stance, you're saying, welcome Shabbat angels. And Shabbat angels are called angels of peace. And there you have the three stanzas, which is welcome angels, bless me angels, and then leave angels. And the previous rep explains, <laughs> you barely just said, hello, welcome, you're saying goodbye. And the answer is once again, because the angels don't have a connection to the Shabbat meal. So we're actually telling them we're going to do our human service of Shabbat, which is eating the Shabbat meal. So, you know, I realize that you're going to stand aside while we do the human stuff. Anyway, getting back, I just wanted to tell you that when you read this Torah portion, you might think uh, the righteous people have angels and we, you know, we're tripping and falling because we don't have angels that are protecting us. Not so. Anyway, and then all of a sudden he receives a prophecy and God is upon him. And God says, I am God, the God of your, your Abraham, the God of your father, Isaac, the land which you are laying upon, to you I will give it and to your offspring. Once again, promising Isaac that even though he promised Abraham, Abraham had two children, and he promised Isaac, telling no, it's you I'm talking about. And then now that Isaac had twins, God is telling Jacob, it's you I'm talking about. And then he goes ahead and he tells him that you will multiply from you will come an entire nation. And he tells him that I am going to guard you and I, wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not forsake you until I do everything that I have said to you. Yaakov wakes up and he says, okay, oh, I didn't know that this is the place of God. And he gets, and, he, and he's actually affected by fear, the presence of God. And now I want to point out, I gave a class last week. I explained it there in the lecture. Do not look at fear as a negative thing. The name of the, the title of that last week's lecture was, there is nothing to fear, but the fear of fear. Fear is a divine emotion, which is why we have it, because we were made in the image and likeness of God. So over here, it means fear as in awe as in feeling the omnipotence of God. It's kind of like when you stand on the tip of the Himalaya mountain or something that I can relate to because I was there when I stood at the edge of the Arizona, of the Grand Canyon, and you look and you think, if this is nothing more than a fingerprint of a fingerprint of God, how awesome is God and how minute am I? That's the type of concept we're looking at. It's a, it's a fear that's not negative, but rather makes you feel the true humility that we have by standing in front of God. And then he goes ahead and he wakes up. And here we have an interesting thing. It says he takes the stone. But one second, didn't it say before he took stones, plural, and placed them around his head? So Rashi gives an amazing interpretation which says that all the stones started fighting with each other. Now, obviously, when we talk like that, we don't mean the stone. We mean the godly force, the spiritual source above of the stone. And each is saying, no, 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 no. Jacob's head is going on me. No, Jacob's head is going on me. So God allowed them 
if they wanted to unite and become one. And thus the many stones turned into one stone. In Kabbalah and in Hasidus, the depth of this is that Jacob was already beginning his work because the work of spirituality is to make from the many one, to make from separation unity. And this is what he's already beginning. And then he pours upon it oil and he announces it and dedicates it to be as a type of altar, a matseva, a, literally a monument um, to God. And he calls the place, he says that this is Bet El, the house of God. And before he named it that way, it was called Luz. And then Yaakov makes an, an oath to God. And he says that if you will be with me and you will protect me and you will provide me with bread and clothing and you will return me in peace to my father's home and you will be unto me as my God, then this rock that I have placed here as a monument, when I come back, I will transform it into a home, a full-blown house of God. And then he goes ahead and he says that in everything you will give me, I will tithe. So I just want to point out something interesting. In Judaism, it is okay to make deals with God. If you do this, I'll do that. However, I'm going to tell you parenthetically, um, and then we better get moving along here, but I'm going to tell you parenthetically that there was this guy who was really running late to a really, really important, seminal, life-changing meeting that he was supposed to have. It would set the entire course of his life on a whole different level. And he's there, and it's running late, the traffic, and now he can't find a parking spot. And he looks up to God and says, God, God Almighty, God, if you give me a parking spot right now, I promise to dedicate $10,000 to the shul. And right after that, a car pulls out. He says, oh, no, forget it, God. I already managed. I found one. That's what we need to be careful with. It's okay to make deals with God, but don't play games with God. A deal is a deal. A commitment is a commitment. And now that Jacob receives his blessing from God, he's moving along on a much happier note and a lighter note. He's not no more weighed down by all the darkness that lies ahead of him. And he comes along to Haran and he meets over there some shepherds and he asks the shepherds if they know Lava. They said, yeah, 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 Lava, Lava lives here in this neighborhood. And he says, is everything okay with him? And they say, yes. And as he's talking, lo and behold, one of the daughters, the younger daughter of Lavan, comes with the sheep. And she was obviously bringing them to the well to drink. And then what happens is he tells them, why are you guys gathered here? I mean, what's going on here? He says, no, what happens is that in order to keep the well pure, we cover it with a rock. However, no one of us or not even a few of us can lift the rock. So therefore we wait till everyone gets here and together we lift the rock and then we, we uh, give our sheep to drink and then we put it back. And all of a sudden, when Jacob sees Rachel and realizes who she is, he by himself lifts up the rock for her to be able to give water to her flock. And from here we see that Jacob 
was physically, this is not a miracle, Jacob was physically extremely powerful. He was literally strong. And we're going to find this later on when we talk about Judah and Joseph, when Judah didn't know it's Joseph and Joseph was the viceroy, you're going to see that it was within the genes of this family that they were very, very strong. <laughs> very different of how we picture, right? We picture, you know, the great spiritual rabbis as old and frail. Not so. Moses was physically strong. Joshua was a warrior. King David was a warrior. You know, it's a little different today. But in the olden days, it wasn't like that. You know, the scholars were physically very strong. Anyway, moving right along over here, what happens? After that, he goes ahead and he kisses Rachel and he cries. And our sages say, why did he cry? Because he foresaw that there's going to be the destruction of the temple. And being that Rachel represents the, the Jewish people, the what we call Knesset Israel, the assembly of the Jewish people, and therefore he cries. And uh, he's crying over the destruction, okay? Another, another thing, say, another more simpler, that's Rashi, one explanation. Rashi then gives just a more practical explanation and says he was crying because when his father was going to marry Rivka, his mother, so the servant, Eliezer, came with camels laddened with wealth, and I come empty-handed to my wife-to-be. And our sages say, why was Jacob empty-handed? And they actually say that because Esau, when he heard that Jacob was traveling, he sent his oldest son, Eliphaz, to go and do the act. Take care of my brother, kill him for what he did. Eliphaz comes and tells Jacob, I'm not like my father. I don't want to kill. What do I do? So he said, so Jacob told him that according to the Talmud, a person who is an absolute pauper and has nothing for himself is called dead. Take everything I have, and as far as you're concerned, you left me for dead. So therefore, he says, I have nothing left. Lavan hears that Jacob's in town. He remembers what happened when his sister got married. He's expecting to find huge amount of gems and wealth that's going to be brought in order to make the shiduch, the match between Jacob and his daughters. And he comes and he sees nada. So then Jacob tells him, I will work for you. And he says, yeah, but just because you're family, you're going to stay by me. You don't have to work for nothing. So you know what? You'll work seven years and I'll give you my daughter as a wife. Okay. And it becomes very clear that Jacob makes the deal with him. I will work for you for seven years in order to have the hand of your younger daughter, Rachel. And here I want to point out a, a, a verse which is painful, and it says that Leah looked haggard, her eyes were sunken, and Rachel looked beautiful. And our sages say, why? Because everyone used to say, aha, Laban has two daughters, an older and a younger. His sister, Rebecca, has two sons, an older and a daughter. So what's going to happen is, that the older will marry the older and the younger will marry the younger. 
Now that would mean that Leah would fall into being a wife of the wicked Esau, and therefore she was consistently worried, heartbroken, sunken in prayer, please don't let me fall into the hands of that wicked person. And then, and obviously we're gonna talk about all this on a mystical level. It says clearly that Jacob loved Rachel. He loved her so much that the seven years went by like a breeze and he wants to marry her. And he tells Lava, give me my wife so that I may be with her physically. And Rashi says, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't talk like that. <laughs> That's not the way we talk. And Rashi says, Yaakov had no bad intentions. He said, I am 84 years old. And according to the prophecy, I have to have 12 sons. And how am I supposed to do this? If we're not going to start now, don't keep me waiting anymore. You made me work first seven years before I can have her. Now let me have my wife so that I can build up the Jewish people. And... Lavan tricks him. Lavan puts Leah under the covering veil, under the chuppah, and has Jacob marry Leah. Now, I want to point out something here, which is going to be very important as we go further in the story. Jacob, after seven years of working for Lavan, he knew, he knew what kind of integrity Lavan did not have. So he protected himself and he told Rachel, I don't trust your father. So therefore I'm giving you a code. Under the chuppah, when your face will be covered, you will whisper to me this code so that I will know that it is really you. When Rachel saw that they're getting ready, Leah, for the, to get married, she said, oh my God, Leah is going to be mortified, embarrassed when Jacob realizes it's not me. So she went to Leah and said that Jacob gave me this code, use this code. And that's how she got married. And then when Jacob realizes what happened, he says to Lovin, how did you do this to me? And Lovin said, what do you want? We don't marry the younger daughter off before the older daughter. By the way, parenthetically speaking, until this very day, in all Orthodox communities, there is a custom, and it's a serious custom, so much so that the Rebbe doesn't want it done orally. The Rebbe wants it done in writing. I know that the Rebbe told someone, do it in writing. If a younger sibling gets married before an older sibling, he needs to get the permission of the older sibling. Now, there are those that keep it separate, the girls and the boys, because it's normal for a girl to get married at a younger age than a boy. So if you have a brother that's a year older than you, so then you're probably going to get married before. But when it comes to a girl to a girl or a boy to a boy, a younger sibling getting married before an older sibling, they need to ask permission of the older sibling. And like I said, the Rebbe wants it actually in writing. Now, I will share with you the simple logic behind this. Because if an older sibling is moving on in age and the younger sibling gets married, the understanding in the mass public is... Uh, the older one's not going to get married. We're already, look, they gave up. They're working on the younger one. So therefore, we do not do that. Now, with that being said, we move right along. And he says, Lavan says to, to Yaakov, hey, chill. No problem. You want Rachel, you can have her. Spend a week. And that's one of the sources that a bride and a groom have a week of parties. Spend a week with your wife, Leah. 
then I will give you Rachel, and then you'll work the next seven years for Rachel. So, you know, I'm not giving it to you for free. You're gonna have to work another seven years, but I won't make you wait. Like you said, you're getting older and you need to have children. And then the next part goes on to say that Leah has children, Rachel remains barren. Now, I wanna point out to you something which is mind boggling. The verse says, and I, and I quote, verse 31, and God saw that Leah was hated, so he opened up her womb. But Rachel was barren. Now, according to what I just read, it seems to be that Leah would have been barren if she wouldn't have had the suffering of being the hated one. Add on to that, Sarah, barren. Rebecca, 20 years, barren. And they have to pray and everything. What's going on here? What is going on with our matriarchs? Why are they barren, 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 barren? The exception of, oh, you suffered enough, you won't have to be barren. And the answer is because these women were not reproducing the way of all mankind and all of the animal kingdom. Oh, a male, a female, mazel tov, a baby but rather they were being called upon to give birth to a nation that will defy the regular laws of nature in their commitment to God. And thus God wants them to know this isn't science. This isn't nature. Focus on what you're doing. And therefore they each had to pray. They each had to have a very deep conscious contact with God asking that they merit to give birth to this nation that will stand at Mount Sinai and say, we do and we will hear. Now with this going on, so um, Rebecca, Leah has four sons, one after another, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, and then Rachel is jealous. And why is she jealous? Our sages say, she's not jealous. How come she has kids and me not? Rather, she said to herself, if Leah is having children, then she has merited to have children. And thus, I must pay attention to her actions. What are the good deeds that she is doing that merited her to have children that I am not doing yet, and I don't have children? And thus, she felt that she may not be as spiritually worthy as her sister, her older sister, Leah. And she goes to Jacob and she tells Jacob, bring me children or I will die. And Jacob snaps at her and says, well, what am I, God? So Rachel says, one second, what did your father do? Isaac and Rebecca had no children and they stood together and they prayed. Why aren't you doing that with me? And Jacob answers, I am not like my father. My father was as barren as his wife. I am not barren like you. I have already four children. Thus, don't look at what my parents did. Look at what my grandfather did. And therefore, she says, aha, what Sarah did was she gave a life to a woman that would have never had that type of life. She took her maid who would have never been able to get married and have children. And she gave it to her husband as a wife slash concubine. 
and therefore said, have with her a child, and because I have given her this gift, God will give me the gift. And therefore, Rachel does the same thing. She takes her maid called Billa, and she gives Billa to Jacob, and Billa has two sons from Jacob. Leah sees this, and Leah says, let me do the same, because I'm not having no more children, it seems. So therefore, she gives her maid Zilpah, and now Jacob has another two children from Zilpah. So we have four from Leah, two from Billah, and two from Zilpah. And now there's an amazing story. Leah's oldest son, Reuven, is going out picking flowers for his mother. Rashi says that these flowers, he gives the name, he says that in Arabic, in Yishmael language, it was called jasmine. I heard a beautiful interpretation that why did Rachel say, give me from the flowers of your son? And Leah snaps at her and says, not enough, you took my husband, you want to take my son's flowers? And she says, tonight is my turn to be with that righteous man. I sell you my turn, my, my turn for the flowers. Why would Rachel do that? I saw this beautiful commentary that says that jasmine was a flower that was used for fertility. And that's what Rachel wanted. She didn't give away the opportunity to be with the holy tzaddik Jacob just because she wanted a vase of flowers on, the, on her table. Now here I want to point out to you probably what I consider the most important lesson of this entire Torah portion. So please, do pay attention. Leah snaps at Rachel and says, is it not enough that you stole my husband? Whoa, 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 Leah. Have you forgotten that it was Rachel's husband and she gave you the code? And if her not giving you the code, you would have never been part of this family? How do you say that to Rachel? You stole my husband. So I heard an unbelievable depth of an insight. From here we see that Rachel didn't tell Leah, listen, Jacob wants to make sure it's me. But now that I know it's not me, I don't want you to go through the embarrassment. So you should know this is the code. Rachel went so far in her loving kindness for her sister that she told Leah, you know that Jacob is supposed to marry you, but he's afraid that that is going to slip in some other lady from the community. So he told me to tell you this code. And all these years, Leah thought that she was the chosen one and that Rachel was a thorn to her side. And Rachel kept her mouth shut and let Leah believe that so that Leah would never have to feel unloved and secondary and a mistake only due to the dishonesty of her father. I, I think that that is the most important lesson of this entire story. I think it's amazing. Going further, so Le Jacob comes home and Leah says, no, tonight you're coming to my tent because I bought off the night from, from Rachel. And because God sees how much Leah wants to have children to build a nation, therefore she has another two kids 
The first one she calls Yisaka, which comes from reward, being that I was rewarded for what I did with Rachel. I bought off this night. And then the next one, Zvulun, and now she has her six sons. So now we have six sons from Leah, two sons from Bila, two sons from Zilpah. We're at 10. They knew through the prophecy there's going to be only 12. Leah gets pregnant. And Leah thinks to herself, if I have another boy, that means that the most hope that Rachel can have is one, which means that she will be even less than the maids. She prays to God that it be a girl. And so it happened. And she named the girl Dina. The word Dina means judgment because she judged herself not to be able to have another boy for the honor of her sister, Rachel. Rachel finally gets pregnant, has a son, and the name is Joseph. Now, the minute this happens, Jacob tells Lavan, time for me to go home. And our sages say, why? Why all of a sudden? And it says, because Jacob is compared to a spark. Joseph is compared to a flame. Esau is compared to straw. Now that the spark has a flame, we have nothing to worry about the straw. We can go back home. On a mystical level, Jacob ultimately was one of the patriarchs, which meant that he lived a life of spirituality. Hence, he was a shepherd to isolate, minimize his, his dealing with the world so he can sit all day with his flock, be in prayer, in Torah study, in meditation, in spirituality. However, Joseph, as you will know, is going to be the viceroy of Egypt. Now we are taught that Joseph had the face of Jacob. Kabbalistically, what that means is that whatever Jacob was on a spiritual level, Joseph was able to be it even on a physical level. Hence, Jacob knew that now he has nothing to worry about Esau and his wickedness in the physical realm because Joseph will carry forth his spiritual spark into the physical world. And thus, we're ready to meet and transform Mr. Esau, the wicked. And then what happens, he starts making a deal with Lavan. Says, listen, until now I worked for you the 14 years, and this was all just for the sake of receiving your daughters as, a, as my wife's. Now, however, I need to work to be able to support this family. So therefore, let's start making deals on which will be mine and which will be yours. And he offers a deal, and he says to him, listen, Remove all the spotted sheep from the flock that I am in charge of. And then I will take my work with them. And being that you know that you removed all of the spotted sheep, so you'll now know that the only thing in my flock that's yours is the non-spotted. Hence, all the spotted sheep that will be born will be mine. Love on loves the idea. Because how can non-spotted sheep give birth to spotted offspring? And he says, deal. And, and as you know, our sages will tell us, and Jacob tells him, 
you changed your deal on me again and again and again and again because everything that was working out for Jacob, so love and change his mind. So love and change his mind. So love and change his mind. Now, interesting, you should know that in this simple interpretation of what I'm going to tell you right now is the simple first ever genetic, genetic, uh, what's the word? Um, when you control genetics, whatever that word is, engineering. The first time we have genetic engineering, because what Jacob did was he took the type of trees that had a very white, a branch that had a very white barks, and then peeled off spots in the bark. So you look and you're seeing a spotted stick. He placed those sticks into the water places where all the sheep came to drink. Now, simply speaking, I want to share with you some interesting customs that many people would, may not know. It is a custom in Judaism. My grandmother was extremely careful with this with all her granddaughters. When you're pregnant, you do not look at any deformity. Literally, if they were walking in the street and, and I don't know what, someone maimed, missing a limb, was crossing the street, my grandmother would write them, put her hand and cover her granddaughter's eyes, who was pregnant, not to look. Additionally, there is a law that the night that the woman goes to the mikvah, when she comes out of the mikvah, she must first look at a righteous person. And if she left the mikvah without looking at another human being, and the first thing she saw was a dog crossing the street, she turns around and goes back to the mikvah. And on top of that, there was a great, great, great Kabbalist and great Tzaddik, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, and he writes an amazing story. And he writes that there was a king with a queen, and the queen gave birth to a child of color. And the king accused her of having an affair and was going to sentence her to death. And one of his advisors said, Your Majesty, if I may, before you sentence her, accusing her of being unfaithful, may I see the bedroom. And in the bedroom, he found over there that there were carvings that were made like men of color. And he asked the queen, by any chance, while you were with, intimately with the king, were you focusing and looking and for some reason thinking about that? And she turned purple and red and said, yeah, I need to admit that, yeah. At some point, you know, my mind was just going and I looked and he told the king, your queen was faithful. The reason you have a child of color is because that's what she was looking at and that's what she was focusing on. Hence, Jacob knew the secret that the child, the offspring, is affected by the focus and the sight of the pregnant mother. Hence, he had them always looking at those sticks. Hence, the genetic engineering, no miracles, simple genetic engineering, that the offspring were exactly the way he needed them to be, and he became extremely wealthy. Lavan became jealous. Not enough that he had all the blessings that Jacob had for him for 14, for 14 years, but he's jealous. And the sons of Jacob start murmuring, oh, look, look who's taking away all of dad's wealth. And Jacob turns to his wives and says, listen, it isn't good. Your father is... is, is resentful, your brothers are resentful. I'm asking you permission, I want to go home. 
And sure enough, God tells him in the dream, go home. And then his wives, Rachel and Leah said, you're asking us permission to take us from our father? Every normal father provides a dowry for his daughter. Our father made you work for us. He actually sold us to you. As far as we're concerned, where you go, we go. And they leave. And then what happens is that because the flocks had to be separated, they put a three-day distance. So Jacob and, and everyone leaves. Some of his workers who were spies for Lavan run back to Lavan. That takes three days. Tells Lavan what's going on, which takes three days. And therefore, Jacob got to travel six days. However, being that he had children and a whole bunch of livestock, what took him six days took Lavan one day, and Lavan is there, right caught up to Jacob. And that night before the showdown, Lavan has a dream, and God tells him, do not mess with Jacob. Don't curse him. Don't bless him. He's mine. Don't mess with him. And Lavan the next day wakes up and tells Jacob, if not for your God stopping me, I would harm you. However, he told me I cannot harm you. However, I have a question. Why did you steal my God? And what does it mean, why did you steal my God? What happened was that um, Rachel, who so wanted that her father should stop idolatry and go in the way of monotheism, she actually stole it. And she stole that little idol. And because she saw that her father's going to go looking now for it, she went and she stuck it under the saddle of her camel. And she sat on her camel. And Lovan is looking and looking and looking and looking. And she, you know, he looks at Rachel. And Rachel says, I'm sorry, Dad, that I can't come down. It's that time of the month for me. And I need to stay separated. And Lovan turns around and walks away. And by the way, the sages tell us that in those days, it wasn't just the Jewish concept. It was the concept that during that time of the month, the men would completely stay away because of the energies that is going on. And I don't mean the, uh, what's it called, PMS. I just mean simply that a period is the process of a potential life not happening. And thus it has that energy and thus they, they, they would pull away. Even Lavan, who was not anyone from the Torah. Now, I mean, anyone from the Torah observant people. And now what happens is Jacob gets upset and says, you looked and you looked and you looked and you're accused and you found nothing. And then Jacob utters words that would later cost Rachel her life. And if anyone stole it, let them pay with their life. Because he was sure that none of his people would ever commit thievery. And that's why Rachel shortly afterwards dies in the journey home during childbirth of Benjamin. Then after that, they finally make a pact between each other and they build, so to speak, a, 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 um, like a little pile of rocks. And it's to show a sign that Lavan will not cross this to harm Jacob. Jacob will not cross this to, to go to war with Lavan. And the only thing they're allowed to deal is in business aspects. But other than that, they made a pact over there 
that they will not be enemies, they will not fight with each other. And Lavan just makes Jacob promise that you will not take any other wives added on to my daughters. You only have these two wives and the two concubines um, for the sake of the other four children. And that is it. And Jacob agrees. Jacob turns around and goes home. Okay, end of the story. We're running quite late. So... I'm gonna just be brief because I did commit to share with you a little bit about Leah and Rachel. And why was Rachel loved and why was Leah not loved? According to Kabbalah, according to the teachings of Hasidus, Leah and Rachel represent two different processes. Leah represents Olam HaMachshava. She represents the world of thought. Rachel represents Olam Hadibur, the world of speech. Leah was the hidden world. Rachel was the revealed world. And that's why in Kabbalah, Leah represents the first hay in God's ineffable tetragrammaton, which represents the emanation of understanding. While Rachel was the second hey, the last letter of God's ineffable tetragrammaton, which represents malchut, kingship. And now I had a teacher who summed it up like this. Everyone loves to talk the talk. Everyone loves to talk and give lectures on Hasidus. But they hate concentrating and meditating on the teachings of Hasidus. That's what one of my mentors taught me on a more deeper level. The thought, the spirituality within is useless if we cannot bring it to the without. If the spirituality we live within us cannot express itself in the way we talk, in the way we behave, in our work, in our office, in our home, in our vacations, if our spirituality just remains an abstract intellectual pursuit, that is not okay. And when it says that Jacob loved Rachel, what it means is that Jacob's entire life was not to isolate himself in spirituality, but engage in the transformation of the physical to the spiritual, meaning that his house was open for guests. It was a pillar of love and kindness and spirituality. And that's how he lived his life. And therefore to him, Rachel was the main wife. Rachel was the main focus. However, the Torah tells us that God made sure that he married Leah first. Because as they say, you can't give what you don't have. Hence, the deeper meaning of Leah is that you work on your insights. And the deeper meaning of Rachel is that you carry that out into your outsides. And the main job of why the soul came down into this world is for the Rachel part. But you can't be a Rachel if you're not first a Leah. I am done. Thank you very much, unmuting everyone and stopping the recording.